Hey, guten Morgen. It's four in the morning, came without a warning. Happy um, I went and got my booster on Friday. And I sat down, and as I sat down, I reached into my disco pocket. Okay. Thing like, like, what? Um, what? Okay, Sumerian origins. We're gonna listen to Anunnaki. I think we should listen to Animalish. Unearthing, unearthing. Anki Secrets, the search for lost cities of the Anunnaki, one month ago. The story of the first settlement of Earth by intelligent beings is a breathtaking saga no less inspiring than the discovery of America, or the circumnavigation of Earth. It was certainly of greater importance for, as a result of this settlement, we and our civilizations exist today. The epic of creation informs us that the gods came to Earth following a deliberate decision by their leader. The Babylonian version, attributing the decision to Marduk, explains that he waited until Earth's soil dried and hardened sufficiently to permit landing and construction operations. Then Marduk announced his decision to the group of astronauts. In the deep above, where you have been residing, the kingly house of above have I built. Now a counterpart of it, I shall build in the below. Marduk then explained his purpose. When from the heavens for assembly you shall descend, there shall be a rest place for the night to receive you all. I will name it Babylon, the gateway of the gods. Earth was thus not merely the object of a visit or a quick exploratory stay. It was to be a permanent home away from home. Traveling on board a planet that was itself a kind of spaceship, crossing the paths of most of the other planets, the Nephilim no doubt first scanned the heavens from the surface of their own planet. Unmanned probes must have followed. Sooner or later they acquired the capacity to send out manned missions to the other planets. As the Nephilim searched for an additional home, Earth must have struck them favorably. Its blue hues indicated it had life-sustaining water and air. Its browns disclosed firm land, its greens, vegetation, and the basis for animal life. Yet when the Nephilim finally voyaged to Earth, it must have looked somewhat different from the way it does to our astronauts today. For when the Nephilim first came to Earth, Earth was in the midst of an ice age, a glacial period that was one of the icing and de-icing phases of Earth's climate. Early glaciation begun some 600,000 years ago. First warming, interglacial period, 550,000 years ago. Second glacial period, 480,000 to 430,000 years ago. 
when the Nephilim first landed on Earth some 450,000 years ago. About a third of Earth's land area was covered with ice sheets and glaciers. With so much of Earth's waters frozen, rainfall was reduced, but not everywhere, due to the peculiarities of wind patterns and terrain, among other things. Some areas that are well watered today were barren then, and some areas with only seasonal rains now were experiencing year-round rainfalls then. The sea levels were also lower because so much water had been captured as ice on the land masses. Evidence indicates that at the height of the two major ice ages, sea levels were as much as 600 to 700 feet lower than at present. Therefore, there was dry land where we now have seas and coastlines. Where rivers continued to run, they created deep gorges and canyons if their courses took them through rocky terrain. If their courses ran in soft earth and clay, they reached the Ice Age seas through vast marshlands. Arriving on Earth amidst such climatic and geographic conditions, where were the Nephilim to set up their first abode? They searched, no doubt, for a place with a relatively temperate climate where simple shelters would suffice and where they could move about in light working clothes rather than in heavily insulated suits. They must also have searched for water for drinking, washing, and industrial purposes, as well as to sustain the plant and animal life needed for food. Rivers would both facilitate the irrigation of large tracts of land and provide a convenient means of transportation. Only a rather narrow temperate zone on earth could meet all these requirements, as well as the need for the long flat areas suitable for landings. The attention of the Nephilim, as we now know, focused on three major river systems and their plains, the Nile, the Indus, and the Tigris-Euphrates. Each of these river basins was suitable for early colonization. Each, in time, became the center of an ancient civilization. The Nephilim would hardly have ignored another need, a source of fuel and energy. On Earth, petroleum has been a versatile and abundant source of energy, heat, and light, as well as a vital raw material from which countless essential goods are made. The Nephilim, judging by Sumerian practice and records, made extensive use of petroleum and its derivatives. It stands to reason that in their search for the most suitable habitat on Earth, the Nephilim would prefer a site rich in petroleum. With this in mind, the Nephilim probably placed the Indus Plain in last place, for it is not an area where oil could be found. The Nile Valley was probably given second place. Geologically, it lies in a major sedimentary rock zone. But the area's oil is found only at some distance from the valley and requires deep drilling. The land of the two rivers, Mesopotamia, was doubtless put in first place. Some of the world's richest oil fields stretch from the tip of the Persian Gulf to the mountains where the Tigris and Euphrates originate. And while in most places one must drill deep to bring up the crude oil, in ancient Sumer, now southern Iraq, bitumens, tars, pitches, and asphalts bubbled or flowed up to the surface naturally. Interestingly, the Sumerians had names for all bituminous substances 
Petroleum, crude oils, native asphalts, rock asphalts, tars, pyrogenic asphalts, mastics, waxes, and pitches. They had nine different names for the various bitumens. By comparison, the ancient Egyptian language had only two, and Sanskrit only three. The book of Genesis describes God's abode on earth, Eden, as a place of temperate climate, warm yet breezy, for God took afternoon strolls to catch the cooling breeze. It was a place of good soil, lending itself to agriculture and horticulture, especially the cultivation of orchards. It was a place that drew its waters from a network of four rivers, and the name of the third river was Hydekel, Tigris. It is the one which floweth towards the east of Assyria, and the fourth was the Euphrates. While opinions regarding the identity of the first two rivers, Pishon, Abundant, and Gihon, which gushes forth, are inconclusive, there is no uncertainty regarding the other two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Some scholars locate Eden in northern Mesopotamia, where the two rivers and two lesser tributaries originate. Others, such as E.A. Spicer, in The Rivers of Paradise, believe that the four streams converged at the head of the Persian Gulf, so that Eden was not in northern but in southern Mesopotamia. The biblical name Eden is of Mesopotamian origin, stemming from the Akkadian Edinu, meaning plain. We recall that the divine title of the ancient gods was Dingur, the righteous, just ones of the rockets. A Sumerian name for the gods abode, Edin, would have meant home of the righteous ones, a fitting description. The selection of Mesopotamia as the home on earth was probably motivated by at least one other important consideration. Though the Nephilim in time established a spaceport on dry land, some evidence suggests that at least initially they landed by splashing down into the sea in a hermetically sealed capsule. If this was the landing method, Mesopotamia offered proximity to not one, but two seas, the Indian Ocean to the south and the Mediterranean to the west, so that in case of an emergency, the landing did not have to depend on one watery site alone, as we shall see a good bay or gulf from which long sea voyages could be launched was also essential. In ancient texts and pictures, the craft of the Nephilim were initially termed celestial boats. The landing of such maritime astronauts, one can imagine, might have been described in ancient epic tales as the appearance of some kind of submarine from the heavens in the sea, from which fishmen emerged and came ashore. The texts do in fact mention that some of the Abgal, who navigated the spaceships, were dressed as fish. One text dealing with Ishtar's divine journeys quotes her as seeking to reach the great Galu, chief navigator, who had gone away in a sunken boat. Barossus transmitted legends regarding Oannes, the being endowed with reason, a god who made his appearance from the Aetherian Sea which bordered on Babylonia. In the first year of the descent of kingship from heaven, Barossus reported that though Oannes looked like a fish, he had a human head under the fish's head and had feet like a man under the fish's tail. His voice, too, and language were articulate and human. The three Greek historians through whom we know what Barossus wrote 
reported that such divine fishmen appeared periodically coming ashore from the Aetherian Sea, the body of water we now call the Arabian Sea, the western part of the Indian Ocean. Why would the Nephilim splash down in the Indian Ocean, hundreds of miles from their selected site in Mesopotamia, instead of in the Persian Gulf, which is so much closer? The ancient reports indirectly confirm our conclusion that the first landings occurred during the second glacial period, when today's Persian Gulf was not a sea, but a stretch of marshlands and shallow lakes in which a splashdown was impossible. Coming down in the Arabian Sea, the first intelligent beings on earth then made their way toward Mesopotamia. The marshlands extended deeper inland than today's coastline. There, at the edge of the marshes, they established their very first settlement on our planet. They named it Eridu, House in Faraway Built. What an appropriate name! To this very day, the Persian term Ordu means encampment. It is a word whose meaning has taken root in all languages. The settled earth is called Erda in German, Erda in Old High German, Jord in Icelandic, Jord in Danish, Ertha in Gothic, Ertha in Middle English. And going back geographically and in time, Earth was Arafa, or Erids in Aramaic, Erd or Erts in Kurdish, and Erids in Hebrew. At Eridu, in southern Mesopotamia, the Nephilim established Earth Station 1, a lonely outpost on a half-frozen planet. Sumerian texts, confirmed by later Akkadian translations, list the original settlements or cities of the Nephilim in the order in which they were established. We are even told which god was put in charge of each of these settlements. A Sumerian text, believed to have been the original of the Akkadian deluge tablets, relates the following regarding five of the first seven cities. After kingship had been lowered from heaven, after the exalted crown, the throne of kingship had been lowered from heaven. He perfected the procedures, the divine ordinances, founded five cities in pure places, called their names, laid them out as centers. The first of these cities, Eridu, he gave to Nadimud, the leader. The second, Bad-Tabira, he gave to Nugig. The third, Larak, he gave to Pabulsag. The fourth, Sapar, he gave to the hero Utu. The fifth, Shurupak, he gave to Sud. The name of the god who lowered kingship from heaven, planned the establishment of Eridu and four other cities, and appointed their governors or commanders is unfortunately obliterated. All the texts agree, however, that the god who waded ashore to the edge of the marshlands and said, Here we settle, was Enki, nicknamed Nudimud. He who made things in the text. This god's two names, Enki, lord of fern ground, and Ea, whose house is water, were most appropriate. Eridu, which remained Enki's seat of power and center of worship throughout Mesopotamian history, was built on ground artificially raised above the waters of the marshlands. The evidence is contained in a text named the myth of Enki and Eridu. The lord of the watery deep, the king Enki, built his house in Eridu. He built the house of the water bank, the king Enki, 
has built a house. Eridu, like a mountain, he raised up from the earth. In a good place he had built it. These and other mostly fragmentary texts suggest that one of the first concerns of these colonists on earth had to do with the shallow lakes or watery marshes. He brought, established, the cleaning of the small rivers. The effort to dredge the beds of streams and tributaries to allow a better flow of the waters was intended to drain the marshes, obtain cleaner, potable water, and implement controlled irrigation. The Sumerian narrative also indicates some landfilling, or the raising of dikes to protect the first houses from the omnipresent waters. A text named by scholars the myth of Anki and the land's order is one of the longest and best preserved of Sumerian narrative poems so far uncovered. Its text consists of some 470 lines, of which 375 are perfectly legible. Its beginning, some 50 lines, is unfortunately broken. The verses that follow are devoted to an exaltation of Enki and to the establishment of his relationship with the chief deity, Anu, his father, Ninti, his sister, and Enlil, his brother. Following these introductions, Enki himself picks up the microphone. As fantastic as it may sound, the fact is that the text amounts to a first-person report by Enki of his landing on Earth. When I approached Earth, there was much flooding. When I approached its green meadows, heaps and mounds were piled up at my command. I built my house in a pure place, my house. Its shade stretches over the snake marsh. The carp fish wave their tails in it among the small geezy reeds. The poem then goes on to describe and record, in the third person, the achievements of Enki. Here are some selected verses. He marked the marshland, placed in it carp and fish. He marked the cane thicket, placed in it reeds and green reeds. In Bilulu, the inspector of canals, he placed in charge of the marshlands. Him who set nets so no fish escapes, whose trap no escapes, whose snare no bird escapes. The son of a god who loves fish, Enki placed in charge of fish and birds. Inkimdu, the one of the ditch and dike, Enki placed in charge of ditch and dike. Him whose mold directs, Kula. The brick-maker of the land, Enki placed in charge of mold and brick. The poem lists other achievements of Enki, including the purification of the waters of the Tigris River and the joining by canal of the Tigris and Euphrates. His house by the watery bank adjoined a wharf at which reed, rats, and boats could anchor and from which they could sail off. Appropriately, the house was named Iabzu, House of the Deep, Enki's sacred precinct in Eridu was known by this name for millennia thereafter. No doubt Enki and his landing party explored the lands around Eridu, but he appears to have preferred traveling by water. The marshlands, he said in one of the texts, is my favorite spot. It stretches out its arms to me. In other texts, Enki described sailing in the marshlands in his boat, named Magur, literally, boat to turn about in, namely a touring boat. 
He tells how his crewmen drew on the oars in unison, how they used to sing sweet songs, causing the river to rejoice. At such times, he confided, sacred songs and spells filled my watery deep. Even such a minor detail as the name of the captain of Enki's boat is recorded. The Sumerian king lists indicate that Enki and his first group of Nephilim remained alone on earth for quite a while, eight shars, 28,800 years, passed, before the second commander or settlement chief was named. Interesting light is shed on the subject as we examine the astronomical evidence. Scholars have been puzzled by the apparent Sumerian confusion regarding which one of the twelve zodiacal houses was associated with Enki. The sign of the fish goat, which stood for the constellation Capricorn, was apparently associated with Enki, and indeed may explain the epithet of the founder of Eridu, Alulim, which could mean sheep of the glittering waters. Yet Ea, Enki, was frequently depicted as holding vases of flowing waters, the original water-bearer, or Aquarius, and he was certainly the god of fishes, and thus associated with Pisces. Astronomers are hard put to clarify how the ancient stargazers actually saw in a group of stars the outlines of, say, fishes, or a water-bearer. The answer that comes to mind is that the signs of the zodiac were not named after the sheep of the star group, but after the epithet, or main activity of a god primarily associated with the time when the vernal equinox was in that particular zodiacal house. If Enki landed on earth, as we believe, at the end of an age of Pisces, witnessed a processional shift to Aquarius, and stayed through a great year, 25,920 years, until an age of Capricorn began, then he was indeed in sole command on earth the purported 28,800 years. The reported passage of time also confirms our earlier conclusion that the Nephilim arrived on earth in the midst of an ice age. The hard work of raising dikes and digging canals commenced when climatic conditions were still harsh, but within a few showers of their landing, the glacial period was giving way to a warmer and rainier climate, circa 430,000 years ago. It was then that the Nephilim decided to move farther inland and expand their settlements. Befittingly, the Anunnaki, rank-and-file Nephilim, named the second commander of Eridu, Al-Lal-Gar, he who in rain time brought rest, but while Enki was enduring the hardships of a pioneer on earth, Anu and his other son, Enlil, were watching the developments from the twelfth planet. The Mesopotamian texts make it clear that the one who was really in charge of the earth mission was Enlil, and as soon as the decision was made to proceed with the mission, Enlil himself descended to earth. For him, a special settlement or base named Larsa was built by Enki Dunu, Enki Digs Deep. When Enlil took personal charge of the place, he was nicknamed Alim, Ram, coinciding with the age of the zodiacal constellation Ares. The establishment of Larsa launched a new phase in the settlement of Earth by the Nephilim. It marked the decision to proceed with the tasks for which they had come to earth, 
which required the shipping to Earth of more manpower, tools, and equipment, and the return of valuable cargoes to the twelfth planet. Splashdowns at sea were no longer adequate for such heavier loads. The climatic changes made the interior more accessible. It was time to shift the landing site to the center of Mesopotamia. At that juncture, Enlil came to Earth, and proceeded from Larsa to establish a mission control center, a sophisticated command post, from which the Nephilim on Earth could coordinate space journeys to and from their home planet, guide in landing shuttlecraft, and perfect their takeoffs and dockings with the spaceship orbiting Earth. The site Enlil selected for this purpose, known for millennia as Nipper, was named by him Nibruki, Earth's Crossing, we recall that the celestial site of the twelfth planet's closest pass to Earth was called the Celestial Place of the Crossing. There Enlil established the Duranki, the bond, heaven-earth. The task was understandably complex and time-consuming. Enlil stayed in Larsa for six shars, 21,600 years, while Nipper was under construction. The Nippurian undertaking was also lengthy, as evidenced by the zodiacal nicknames of Enlil. Having paralleled the ram, Ares, while in Larsa, he was subsequently associated with the bull, Taurus. Nipper was established in the age of Taurus. A devotional poem composed as a hymn to Enlil, the all-beneficent and glorifying Enlil, his consort Ninlil, his city Nipper, and its lofty house, the Eker tells us much about Nipper. For one thing, Enlil had at his disposal there some highly sophisticated instruments, a lifted eye, which scans the land, and a lifted beam, which searches the heart of all the land. Nipper, the poem tells us, was protected by awesome weapons. Its sight is awesome fear, dread. From its outside no mighty god could approach. Its arm was a vast net, and in its midst there crouched a fast-stepping bird, a bird whose hand the wicked and the evil could not escape. Was the place protected by some death ray, by an electronic power field? Was there in its center a helicopter pad, a bird so swift no one could outrun its reach? In the center of Nipper, atop an artificially raised platform, stood Enlil's headquarters, the Kier place of earth's root, the place where the bond between heaven and earth rose. This was the communication center of mission control, the place from which the Anunnaki on earth communicated with their comrades, the Ejiji, they who turn and see in the orbiting spacecraft. At this center, the ancient texts goes on to say, stood a heavenward tall pillar reaching to the sky. This extremely tall pillar, firmly planted on the ground as a platform that cannot be overturned, was used by Enlil to pronounce his word, Evanward. This is a simple description of a broadcasting tower. Once the word of Enlil, his command, approached heaven, abundance would pour down on earth. What a simple way to describe the flow of materials, special foods, medicines, and tools, brought down by the shuttlecraft once the word from Nipper was given. This control center on a raised platform, and Lil's lofty house, 
contained a mysterious chamber named the Durga, as mysterious as the distant waters, as the heavenly zenith, among its emblems, the emblems of the stars, the me it carries to perfection. Its words are for utterance, its words are gracious oracles. What was this Durga? Breaks in the ancient tablet have robbed us of more data. But the name speaks for itself, for it means the dark, crown-like chamber. A place where star charts were kept, where predictions were made, where the me, the astronaut's communications, were received and transmitted. The description reminds us of mission control in Houston, Texas, monitoring the astronauts on their moon missions, amplifying their communications, plotting their courses against the starry sky, giving them gracious oracles of guidance. We may recall here the tale of the god, Zhu, who made his way to Enlil's sanctuary and snatched away the Tablet of Destinies, whereupon suspended was the issuance of commands, the hollowed inner chamber lost its brilliance. Stillness spread, silence prevailed. In the epic of creation, the destinies of the planetary gods were their orbits. It is reasonable to assume that the Tablet of Destinies, which was so vital to the functions of Enlil's mission control center, also controlled the orbits and flight paths of the spaceships that maintained the bond between heaven and earth. It might have been the vital black box containing the computer programs that guided the spaceships, without which the contact between the Nephilim on Earth and their link to the home planet was disrupted. Most scholars take the name Enlil to mean Lord of the Wind, which fits the theory that the ancients personified the elements of nature and thus assigned one god to be in charge of winds and storms. Yet some scholars have already suggested that in this instance the term Lil means not a stormy wind of nature, but the wind that comes out of the mouth, an utterance, a command, a spoken communication. Once again, the archaic Sumerian pictographs for the term En, especially as applied to Enlil, and for the term Lil, shed light on the subject. There is a structure with a high tower of antennas rising from it, as well as a contraption that looks very much like the giant radar nets erected nowadays for capturing and emitting signals, the vast net described in the texts. In Bad Tibira, established as an industrial center, Enlil installed his son, Nanar, Sin, in command. The texts speak of him in a list of cities as Nugig, E of the Night Sky. There, we believe the twins, Inanna Ishtar and Utu Shamash, were born, an event marked by associating their father, Nanar, with the next zodiacal constellation, Gemini, the twins. As the god trained in rocketry, Shamash was assigned the constellation Gur, meaning both rocket and the crab's claw, or cancer, followed by Ishtar and the lion Leo, upon whose back she was traditionally depicted. The sister of Enlil and Enki, the nurse Ninhursag, Sud, was not neglected. In her charge, Enlil put Shurupak, the medical center of the Nephilim, an event marked by naming her constellation the Maid, Virgo. 
While these centers were being established, the completion of Nipper was followed by the construction of the spaceport of the Nephilim on Earth. The texts made clear that Nipper was the place where the words, commands, were uttered. There, when Enlil commanded, towards heaven, that which shines forth rose like a skyrocket. But the action itself took place where Shamash rises, and that place, the Cape Kennedy of the Nephilim, was Sipar, the city and the charge of the Chief of the Eagles, where multi-stage rockets were raised within its special enclave, the sacred precinct. As Shamash matured to take command of the fiery rockets, and in time also to become the god of justice, he was assigned the constellations Scorpio and Libra, the scales. Completing the list of the first seven cities of the gods, and the correspondence with the twelve zodiac constellations, was Larak, where Enlil put his son Ninurta in command. The city lists call him Pabil Sag, Great Protector. It is the same name by which the constellation Sagittarius was called. It would be unrealistic to assume that the first seven cities of the gods were established haphazardly. These gods, who were capable of space travel, located the first settlements in accordance with a definite plan, serving a vital need, to be able to land on Earth and to leave Earth for their own planet. What was the master plan? As we searched for an answer, we asked ourselves a question. What is the origin of Earth's astronomical and astrological symbol? A circle bisected by a right-angled cross, the symbol we use to signify target. The symbol goes back to the origins of astronomy and astrology in Sumer and is identical with the Egyptian hieroglyphic sign for place. Is this coincidence or significant evidence? Did the Nephilim land on Earth by superimposing on its image or map some kind of target? The Nephilim were strangers to Earth. As they scanned its surface from space, they must have paid special attention to the mountains and mountain ranges. These could present hazards during landings and takeoffs, but they could also serve as navigational landmarks. If the Nephilim, as they hovered over the Indian Ocean, looked toward the land between the rivers, which they had selected for their earliest colonizing efforts, one landmark stood out unchallenged, Mount Ararat, an extinct volcanic massif. Ararat dominates the Armenian Plateau with the present-day borders of Turkey, Iran, and Soviet Armenia meet. It rises on the eastern and northern sides to some 3,000 feet above sea level, and on the northwestern side to 5,000 feet. The whole massif is some 25 miles in diameter, a towering dome sticking out from the surface of Earth. Other features make it stand out not only from the horizon, but also from high in the skies. First, it is located almost midway between two lakes, Lake Van and Lake Sovan. Second, two peaks rise from the high massif, Little Ararat, 12,900 feet, and Great Ararat, 17,000 feet, well over five kilometers. No other mountains rival the solitary heights of the two peaks, which are permanently snow-covered. They are like two shining beacons between the two lakes that, in daylight, 
act as giant reflectors. We have reason to believe that the Nephilim selected their landing site by coordinating a north-south meridian with an unmistakable landmark and a convenient river location. North of Mesopotamia, the easily identifiable twin-peaked Ararat would have been the obvious landmark. A meridian drawn to the center of the twin-peaked Ararat bisected the Euphrates. That was the target, the site selected for the spaceport. Could one easily land and take off there? The answer was yes. The selected site lay in a plain. The mountain ranges surrounding Mesopotamia were a substantial distance away. The highest ones to the east, northeast, and north would not interfere with a space shuttle gliding in from the southeast. Was the place accessible? Could astronauts and materials be brought there without too much difficulty? Again, the answer was yes. The site could be reached overland and via the Euphrates River by waterborne craft. And one more crucial question. Was there a nearby source of energy, of fuel for light and power? The answer was an emphatic yes. The bend in the Euphrates River where Sippar was to be established was one of the richest known sources in antiquity of surface bitumens, petroleum products that seeped up through natural wells and could be collected from the surface without any deep digging or drilling. We can imagine Enlil surrounded by his lieutenants at the spacecraft's command post, drawing the cross within a circle on the map. What shall we call the place, you may have asked. Why not Sipar, someone might have suggested. In Near Eastern languages, the name means bird. Sipar was the place where the eagles would come to nest. How would the space shuttles glide down to Sipar? We can visualize one of the space navigators pointing out the best route. On the left, they had the Euphrates and the mountainous plateau west of it. On the right, the Tigris and the Zagros range east of it. If the craft were to approach Sipar at the easily set angle of 45 degrees to the Ararat meridian, its path would take it safely between these two hazardous areas. Moreover, coming into land at such an angle, it would cross in the south over the rocky tip of Arabia while at a high altitude and start its glide over the waters of the Persian Gulf. Coming and going, the craft would have an unobstructed field of vision and of communication with mission control at Nipper. And Lil's lieutenant would then make a rough sketch, a triangle of waters and mountains on each side, pointing like an arrow towards Sipar. An X would mark Nipper in the center. Incredible as it may seem, this sketch was not made by us. The design was drawn on a ceramic object unearthed at Susa, at a stratum dated to about 3200 BC. It brings to mind the planisphere that described the flight path and procedures, which was based on 45-degree segments. The establishment of settlements on Earth by the Nephilim was not a hit-or-miss effort. All the alternatives were studied, all the resources evaluated, all the hazards taken into account. Moreover, the settlement plan itself was carefully mapped out so that each site fit into the final pattern, whose purpose was to outline the landing path to Sipar. No one has previously attempted to see a master plan in the scattered Sumerian settlements, 
But if we look at the first seven cities ever established, we find that Bad Tabira, Shurupak, and Nippur lay on a line running precisely at a 45 degree angle to the Ararat meridian. And that line crossed the meridian exactly at Sippar. The other two cities whose sites are known, Eridu and Larsa, also lay on another straight line that crossed the first line and the Ararat meridian, also at Sippar. Taking our cue from the ancient sketch which made Nippur the center of a circle and drawing concentric circles from Nippur through the various cities, we find that another ancient Sumerian town, Lagash, was located exactly on one of these circles, on a line equidistant from the 45-degree line, like the Eridu larsa sippar line. The location of Lagash mirrors that of Larsa, though the site of Lerak, seeing the bright halo, remains unknown. The logical site for it would be at point five, since there logically was a city of the gods there completing the string of cities on the central flight path at intervals of six Beru, Bad Tabira, Chirupak, Nippur, Larak, Sipar. The two outside lines, flanking the central line running through Nippur, lay six degrees on each side of it, acting as southwest and northeast outlines of the central flight path. Appropriately, the name Laarsa meant seeing the red light, and Laegash meant seeing the halo at six. The cities along each line were indeed six barrow, approximately 60 kilometers or 37 miles from each other. This, we believe, was the master plan of the Nephilim. Having selected the best location for their spaceport, Sipar, they laid out the other settlements in a pattern outlining the vital flight path to it. In the center they placed Nippur, where the bond Heaven-Earth was located. Neither the original cities of the gods nor their remains can ever be seen by man again. They were all destroyed by the deluge that later swept over Earth. But we can learn much about them, because it was the sacred duty of Mesopotamian kings continuously to rebuild the sacred precincts in exactly the same spot and according to the original plans. The rebuilders stressed their scrupulous adherence to the original plans in their dedication inscriptions, as this one, uncovered by Laird, stated. The everlasting ground plan, that which for the future the construction determined, I have followed. It is the one which bears the drawings from the olden times and the writing of the upper heaven. If Lagash, as we suggest, was one of the cities that served as a landing beacon, then much of the information provided by Gudea in the 3rd millennium B.C. makes sense. He wrote that when Ninurta instructed him to rebuild the sacred precinct, an accompanying god gave him the architectural plans, drawn on a stone tablet, and a goddess, who had traveled between heaven and earth and her chamber, showed him a celestial map and instructed him on the astronomical alignments of the structure. In addition to the divine black bird, the god's terrible eye, the great being that subdues the world to its power, and the world controller, whose sound could reverberate all over, were installed in the sacred precinct. Finally, when the structure was complete, 
the emblem of Utu was raised upon it, facing toward the rising place of Utu, toward the spaceport at Sipar. All these beaming objects were important to the spaceport's operation, for Utu himself came forth joyfully to inspect the installations when completed. Early Sumerian depictions frequently show massive structures, built in earliest times of reeds and wood, standing in fields among grazing cattle. The current assumption that these were stables for cattle is contradicted by the pillars that are invariably shown protruding from the roofs of such structures. The pillar's purpose was to support one or more pairs of rings, whose function is unstated. But although these structures were erected in the fields, one must question whether they were built to shelter cattle. The Sumerian pictographs depict the word dur, or tur, meaning abode, gathering place, by drawings that undoubtedly represent the same structures shown on the cylinder seals. But they make clear that the main feature of the structure was not the huts, but the antenna tower. Similar pillars with rings were posted at temple entrances, within the sacred precincts of the gods, and not only out in the countryside. But were these objects and tenants attached to broadcasting equipment? Were the pairs of rings radar emitters placed in the fields to guide the incoming shuttlecraft? Were the eye-like pillars scanning devices, the all-seeing eyes of the gods of which many texts have spoken. We know that the equipment to which these various devices were connected was portable, for some Sumerian seals depict box-like divine objects being transported by boat or mounted on pack animals which carried the objects farther inland once the boats had docked. These black boxes, when we see what they looked like, bring to mind the Ark of the Covenant built by Moses under God's instructions. The chest was to be made of wood, overlaid with gold both inside and outside. Two electricity-conducting surfaces were insulated by the wood between them. A capareth, also made of gold, was to be placed above the chest and held up by two cherubim cast of solid gold. The nature of the capareth, meaning scholars speculate, covering, is not clear. But this verse from Exodus suggests its purpose, and I will address thee from above the capareth, from between the two cherubim. The implication that the Ark of the Covenant was principally a communications box, electrically operated, is enhanced by the instructions concerning its portability. It was to be carried by means of wooden staves, passed through four golden rings. No one was to touch the chest proper and when one Israelite did touch it, he was killed instantly, as if by a charge of high-voltage electricity. Such apparently supernatural equipment, which made it possible to communicate with a deity, though the deity was physically somewhere else, became objects of veneration, sacred cult symbols. Temples at Lagash, Ur, Mari, and other ancient sites included among their devotional objects, I, idols. The most outstanding example was found at an I temple in Telbrak, in northwestern Mesopotamia. This fourth millennium BC temple 
was so named not only because hundreds of eye symbols were unearthed there, but mainly because the temple's inner sanctum had only one altar on which a huge stone double-eye symbol was displayed. In all probability, it was a simulation of the actual divine object, Ninurta's terrible eye, or the one at Enlil's mission control center at Nippur, about which the ancient scribe reported, His raised eye scans the land. His raised beam searches the land. The flat plain of Mesopotamia necessitated, it seems, the artificial raising of platforms on which the space-related equipment was to be placed. Texts and pictorial depictions leave no doubt that the structures ranged from the earliest field huts to the later staged platforms, reached by staircases and sloped ramps that led from a broad lower stage to a narrower upper one, and so on. At the top of the ziggurat, an actual residence for the god was built, surrounded by a flat-walled courtyard to house his bird and weapons. A ziggurat depicted on a cylinder seal not only shows the customary stage-upon-stage construction, it also has two green antennas whose height appears to have equaled three stages. Marduk claimed that the ziggurat and temple compound at Babylon, the Isagil, had been built under his own instructions, also in accordance with the writing of Upper Heaven. A tablet, known as the Smith Tablet after its decipherer, analyzed by André Perrault, established that the seven-stage ziggurat was a perfect square, with the first stage, or base, having sides of fifteen gar each. Each successive stage was smaller in area and in height, except the last stage, the god's residence, which was of a greater height. The total height, however, was again equal to fifteen gar, so that the complete structure was not only a perfect square, but a perfect cube as well. The gar employed in these measurements was equivalent to twelve short cubits, approximately six meters or twenty feet. Two scholars, H.G. Wood and L.C. Stichini, have shown that the Sumerian sexagesimal base, the number 60, determined all the primary measurements of Mesopotamian ziggurats. Thus, each side measured three by sixty cubits at its base, and the total was sixty gar. What factor determined the height of each stage? Stichini discovered that if he multiplied the height of the first stage, 5.5 gar, by double cubits, the result was 33, or the approximate latitude of Babylon, 32.5 degrees north. Similarly calculated, the second stage raised the angle of observation to 51 degrees, and each of the succeeding four stages raised it by another six degrees. The seventh stage thus stood atop a platform raised to 75 degrees above the horizon at Babylon's geographic latitude. This final stage added 15 degrees, letting the observer look straight up at a 90-degree angle. Stachini concluded that each stage acted like a stage of an astronomical observatory with a predetermined elevation relative to the arc of the sky. There may, of course, have been more hidden considerations in these measurements, while the elevation of 33 degrees was not too accurate for Babylon, it was precise for Sippar. 
Was there a relationship between the six-degree elevation at each of four stages and the six Beru distances between the cities of the gods? Were the seven stages somehow related to the location of the first seven settlements, or to Earth's position as the seventh planet? G. Martini showed how these features of the ziggurat suited it for celestial observations, and that the topmost stage of the Isagila was oriented toward the planet Shupa, which we have identified as Pluto, and the constellation Aries. But were the ziggurats raised solely to observe the stars and planets, or were they also meant to serve the spacecraft of the Nephilim? All the ziggurats were oriented so that their corners pointed exactly north, south, east, and west. As a result, their sides ran precisely at 45-degree angles to the four cardinal directions. This meant that a space shuttle coming in for a landing could follow certain sides of the ziggurat exactly along the flight path and reach Sipar without difficulty. The Akkadian Babylonian name for these structures, Zikuratu, connoted tube of divine spirit. The Sumerians called the ziggurats Esh, the term denoted supreme or most high, as indeed these structures were. It could also denote a numerical entity relating to the measuring aspect of the ziggurats, and it also meant a heat source, fire in Akkadian and Hebrew. Even scholars who have approached the subject without our space interpretation could not escape the conclusion that the ziggurats had some purpose other than to make the gods' abode a high-rise building. Samuel N. Kramer summed up the scholastic consensus. The ziggurat, the stage tower which became the hallmark of Mesopotamian temple architecture, was intended to serve as a connecting link, both real and symbolic, between the gods in heaven and the mortals on earth. We have shown, however, that the true function of these structures was to connect the gods in heaven with the gods, not the mortals, on earth. in the order in which they were established. We are even told which god was put in charge of each of these settlements. A Sumerian text, believed to have been the original of the Akkadian deluge tablets, relates the following regarding five of the first seven cities. After kingship had been lowered from heaven, after the exalted crown, the first... of kingship had been lowered from heaven, he perfected the procedures, the divine ordinances, founded five cities in pure places, called their names, laid them out as centers, 
The first of these cities, Eridu, he gave to Nadimud, the leader. The second, Bad Tabira, he gave to Nugig. The third, Larak, he gave to Pabulsag. The fourth, Sapar, he gave to the hero Utu. The fifth, Shurupak, he gave to Sud. The name of the god who lowered kingship from heaven planned the establishment of Eridu and four other cities, and appointed their governors or commanders is unfortunately obliterated. All the texts agree, however, that the god who waded ashore to the edge of the marshlands and said, Here we settle, was Enki, nicknamed Nudimud, he who made things in the text. This god's two names, Enki, lord of fern ground, and Ea, whose house is water, were most appropriate. Eridu, which remained Inki's seat of power and center of worship throughout Mesopotamian history, was built on ground artificially raised above the waters of the marshlands. The evidence is contained in a text named The Myth of Enki and Eridu. The lord of the watery deep, the king Enki, built his house in Eridu. He built the house of the water bank, the king Enki, has built a house Eridu, like a mountain, he raised up from the earth. In a good place, he had built it. These and other mostly fragmentary texts suggest that one of the first concerns of these colonists on earth had to do with the shallow lakes or watery marshes. He brought, established, the cleaning of the small rivers. The effort to dredge the beds of streams and tributaries to allow a better flow of the waters was intended to drain the marshes, obtain cleaner, potable water, and implement controlled irrigation. The Sumerian narrative also indicates some landfilling, or the raising of dikes to protect the first houses from the omnipresent waters. A text named by scholars the myth of Anki and the land's order is one of the longest and best preserved of Sumerian narrative poems so far uncovered. Its text consists of some 470 lines, of which 375 are perfectly legible. Its beginning, some 50 lines, is unfortunately broken. The verses that follow are devoted to an exaltation of Enki and to the establishment of his relationship with the chief deity, Anu, his father, Ninti, his sister, and Enlil, his brother, Following these introductions, Enki himself picks up the microphone. As fantastic as it may sound, the fact is that the text amounts to a first-person report by Enki of his landing on Earth. When I approached Earth, there was much flooding. When I approached its green meadows, heaps and mounds were piled up at my command. I built my house in a pure place, my house. Its shade stretches over the snake marsh. The carp fish wave their tails in it among the small geezy reeds. The poem then goes on to describe and record, in the third person, the achievements of Enki. Here are some selected verses. He marked the marshland, placed in it carp and fish. He marked the cane thicket, placed in it reeds and green reeds. In Bilulu, the inspector of canals, he placed in charge of the marshlands. Him who set nets so no fish escapes, whose trap no escapes. 
whose snare no bird escapes, the son of a god who loves fish, Enki placed in charge of fish and birds. Inkimdu, the one of the ditch and dike, Enki placed in charge of ditch and dike. Him whose mold directs, Kula, the brick maker of the land, Enki placed in charge of mold and brick. The poem lists other achievements of Enki, including the purification of the water.